Hi. Hi. Um, I'm wondering. Where are you? I'm oh, here. There, yeah. um, wondering if you'd comment on various other words that are sometimes used for consciousness in Pali, such as uh, mindfulness, sati, uh, citta, possibly buddho, uh, prajna, and whether you feel it's all the same same consciousness referred to, or is there some nuance, some difference? There's quite a lot of nuance and difference. Um, these terms are by no means synonymous. Um, traditionally, the terms uh, vijnana, which we translate as consciousness, uh, citta, which we translate as mind sometimes, soul would be perfectly okay actually, and um, mano, which is usually translated as mind, are considered to be more or less synonymous in the early tradition. So that's man, vijnana, citta and mano. When we get into words like panya or sati, in other words, wisdom or mindfulness or sampajanya, awareness, um, these are not synonymous to words like vijnana. And I think that's important. I mean, we saw this morning how the Buddha does not include consciousness within the idea of nama, right? You have nama, contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention, together with rupa, generate vijnana. So vijnana is more, in later Buddhism, in Abhidharma, they distinguish between citta and chaita, what are sometimes called primary minds and mental factors. In other words, consciousness is, in a sense, a more total concept of being aware in a, in a, in, in a broad, inclusive sense, the totality of our experience here and now, whether it's visual, audio, or whatever. Whereas panya, for example, intelligence um, or wisdom, I prefer to translate it as intelligence, or mindfulness, are faculties of consciousness that can be trained and developed. I don't know whether I have it in this collection, but a very interesting passage I came across. Um, let's just see if I've got it. The very interesting passage I came across. Um, I don't have it. Where someone asks the Buddha the distinction between consciousness, vijnana, and intelligence, panya. And he says the difference is consciousness, he says, is to be fully known. Panya, or intelligence, is to be cultivated. Okay? Now that is a reference to the Four Noble Tasks, whereas the first task, Dukkha, which includes the five aggregates, in other words, form, feeling, perception, consciousness, and so on, the Buddha suggests that is something we need to fully know, to embrace, to really you know, come to understand in a deep sense. Whereas the path, the fourth noble task, or truth, is to be cultivated. So intelligence, as part of the path, is to be cultivated, whereas consciousness, as part of the, of the existential condition, is to be fully known. I thought that very revealing, actually. Um, so the, again, the, the Buddha doesn't, it's not so much interesting coming up with synonyms and so on, but always in asking the question, when we're talking of, say, consciousness, what is the practice that that entails or applies? Whereas we talk about intelligence, what practice does that entail? So that was one example of how he makes this difference, not by definition, but in terms of different uh, responses to these particular qualities. Uh, hi, Mr. Bachelor. Yes. I've got it. I'm sorry. I beat you to it. First of all, a wonderful day. How could possibly a full day with you be anything but wonderful? Your wife must be the most lucky woman in all of, in all of the UK. Um, well, we live in France. <laughs> that's why I said the UK. Uh, returning to Dr. 
Collins query early, earlier this morning, for you, if at all, where does quantum physics fit into some of these notions that we've been talking about today? Thank you very much. Um, well, I'm not a scientist, and I'm not even very scientifically literate. I'm not wired to think very well in that domain. But clearly quantum physics, or any other discipline within the natural sciences, if we paraphrase a bit what I just said before, would seem to be a field to be fully known, as the Buddha would say. If we to extend this idea of parinya, fully knowing, then this would be within the domain of, of understanding. Um, and I think it's a sort of um, an encouragement to always be open to understand more about the world of, in which we live, of which we are a part. Um, as I understand, uh, I don't understand, uh, uh, Niels Bohr, I think, once says, if, you, if, you un if, you, uh, if you're not shocked by quantum mechanics, then you don't understand it. Um, and I'm not shocked by it, so I probably don't understand it. <laughs> but I think we could also say the same about things like, you know, conditioned arising, paticca samupada. If you're not shocked by it, you probably don't understand it. I think that may be true. But again, I'm avoiding the point. The, I learn a great deal through reading popular science books. And I find that in many respects, um, books, for example, on evolution or biology, physics, and so on, when they're written well, which is not generally the case, I've found, <laughs> is that they open up um, and illustrate uh, ideas which I'm familiar with in Buddhism in a much richer way than the Buddhist texts. I find if you want, as, a, as, a, as an illu illustration of, say, the idea of conditioned arising, dependent origination, I find that um, the theory of natural selection um, illustrates that in a way that's non-abstract, non-theoretical, but giving concrete examples and evidence for a similar kind of process, which the Buddha described as simply as when this is, that comes to be. It's very abstract. So I find actually the, the more knowledge I acquire through my studies of the natural world, the natural sciences, the more that informs and enriches my understanding of these sort of core ideas that I find in, in the teachings of the Buddha. I have the mic. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to express my appreciation for your attention to linguistic detail because I think that's where a lot of misunderstanding has arisen. Um, we are talking about languages that tend to focus on nouns maybe more than gerunds. Mm -hmm. And so just in the case of emptying versus emptiness, we have a process versus something that mm. is static. We have a gerund as opposed to a noun. And I think that's where a lot of the difficulty has come through in translating from one culture to another because the culture is represented through the language. No, I agree. Um, it, it's, it's certain, I think though that what we find in Sanskrit and Pali is that the words have a greater flexibility. They can be used more easily as nouns and verbs. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that we're stuck. This has to be a noun. Sometimes it does. But I do think there's a greater fluidity. But words like Nibbana, for example, or Buddha, which we translate almost invariably as nouns, are used widely in a verbal form. So, to Nibbana, to Buddha, these are, are verbs. Um, that doesn't mean they're always used as verbs, but it means that there is a, there's less, it seems, of a commitment to their status as nouns. I, and the same with Tibetan. I mean, you, again, you, you could say, like Nirvana in Tibetan is Nyangali Deba, which means gone beyond pain, 
but it can also be used in a verbal form, nyang and le dawa, which means to go beyond pain. Mm -hmm. And you find this again and again and again. It's always rather striking as a Westerner to find that the words have ca capacities in these classical languages that English often doesn't. And I think another example of this is my preference for the word awakening over enlightenment, which again suggests very much a state, whereas awakening as a gerund um, has the, you know, the, the advantage of being thought of more in terms of a process. And generally speaking, I try to find a more process-type language to express these ideas rather than to slip into the convenient habit. Like the Eightfold Path I like to translate as um, uh, right seeing rather than right view, right thinking, right speaking, right mm -hmm. acting, <coughs> which may not strictly be an accurate translation, but I do think it's important to try to emphasize the process nature of what the Buddha is teaching about, which seems to be you know, unavoidable in terms of his understanding of the nature of things. Impermanent, dukkha, anatta. We need to find a language in English that reflects those key understandings of the world and the self um, in that processual sense. And I think this is the challenge as translators, all of us as translators face, and it's a work in progress. Can you tell me again the name of the Professor, who's oh, the Indo-Aryan expert, <laughs> K.R. Um, Norman. Now he's done a very good translation of the um, Sutta Nipata, that's available in paperback called the Rhinoceros Horn. He's a very he translates very literally. He doesn't he's not bothered about it sounding nice. An excellent book of his, which is not as difficult as it sounds. It's got the rather unappetizing title. A Philological Approach to Buddhism. <laughs> um, it's actually a series of public lectures he gave which are all about what you can learn from the Pali texts in terms of uh, analyzing the words themselves and the grammar and so on. And he shows, for example, in this book how the word Maya, which we think which is given to the Buddha's mother, is actually um, uh, a mistake. It's because in the shift of the Pali materials from northeast India to western India, the language took on inflections of the different regions. And they could, they could, he's amazing. They can spot all this stuff. And in fact, Maya should be Mata. T becomes Y very easily. And Mata just means mother. And it, it doesn't strike us as strange that you would call your mother illusion. Which, of course, nobody would. I mean, in English, we, we're used to the word Maya from other cultures, so it doesn't... But actually, it would be an absurd name to give in India, Maya. So all kinds of little details like that come through. Um, but the text I recite, the, 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 the thing I quoted from is from his Collected Papers, Volume 2. Now, I'm not sure that would be everybody's idea of bedtime reading. <laughs> But there are gems in this stuff, but it does take a, a little bit of effort because he often uses Pali words without translating them. And we're going to come round to the... Can you circle round to the front a bit? There's a lady there, lady there, lady here. Earlier, when we were talking about consciousness, uh -huh. um, I was very concerned that it really also includes, from my understanding, the unconscious or the subconscious, uh -huh. the total understanding that has been conditioned, uh -huh. where often we seem to use it as only what comes up uh -huh. into the clear awareness, yeah. right? Yeah. But aren't you using it in, in the sense of total understanding? No, um, I'm using it fairly traditionally to refer simply to what that of which we are phenomenologically aware, in other words, conscious. And the question this morning from uh, Cliff 
um, again pointed out that today we now know that so much of, um, of what conditions us is unconscious or subconscious. There are hints in some of the Buddhist teachings. Uh, of, they talk of latencies and uh, vasana, for example, tendencies and habits that are not at the level of consciousness. But the, the, in classical Buddhist teaching, there's not really an equivalent idea to that of what we now would call the unconscious. That's something that really comes to the fore um, in the last century, although even in the West there are precursors to this idea that go back, I think, to the Greeks. But it becomes a you know, dominant way of understanding our experience, as it were, um, I guess really starting with Freud. And then as modern cognitive science and so on, in a sense, is has opened that up far, far further. But when I use the word consciousness, I'm using it fairly traditionally, uh, in a Buddhist sense, referring to what it is that we are aware of at any given moment. In other words, within the domain of consciousness and not really paying attention to the unconscious. But of course, if we got into a further elaboration of, say, perception or That's inclinations, then nowadays we would understand that our inclination to say something or do something is driven by habits, predispositions, unconscious fears that manifest as speech or, or acts. Um, and there's a sort of sense of that in Buddhism and the idea that karma from past lifetimes is somehow waiting there, imminent in beneath the surface of consciousness. Um, but I think we can probably explain that and understand that more usefully today by various notions of unconscious or subconscious processes. Okay. Mm, it's Sanskrit. They don't have that in Pali. Hi. 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 Uh, I suppose I'm asking you this because of the Tibetan part of your um, experience. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things in my limited uh, experience with Tibetan Buddhism and Zen is that there's a part of my uh, cultivation that feels, um, it's not quite devotional, but it feels an excitement or a, a rising yeah. feeling that while I, I experience that in uh, a vipassana practicing, mm -hmm. there's a gap. Mm -hmm. And I was talking um, a little while ago about was it, was it just language? Was it that I was misinterpreting my experience of rising or filling or expanding that I would get from my Tibetan practice mm -hmm. and some Zen practice? Mm. Uh, was I just giving it the wrong label, um, you know, uh, because uh, in Vipassana it's not like I don't experience that. But I just wondered if you could comment on it, because there's a devotional or expanding mm. feeling that um, I probably am attached to, but I, I'm not require, <laughs> requiring myself to have it. Now that's a good question, and one that oft I'm often asked this. I think one thing perhaps we need to take more into account today is the fact that people seem to exhibit or are wired, let's say, in a way that we would describe perhaps as, 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 as temperamentally different. I wonder if we could not evolve a kind of spiritual typology. In a sense, the Enneagram yes. work, I think, does that rather well, actually. Yeah. And I was very interested for many, when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, I did a, I did a, a Jungian analysis in yes. Zurich. And the, one of the things that I most valued from that was the understanding of Jung's uh, typological system, the four types of Jung. Right. Whereas it often feels in Buddhism that any given orthodoxy seems to privilege a certain spiritual yes. type. Yes. And it's as though all the teachings uh, kind of try to force every student to conform to that type. And I think you can see that in the different Tibetan schools, for example. Yes. The Gelugpa seems in a way to privilege the thinking type, whereas the Nyingmapas are perhaps more privileging of the intuitive type, mm -hmm. or 
and Zen perhaps gives more emphasis sometimes to the sensation type right. and, and certain devotional practices in Tibetan Buddhism would appeal more to a feeling type. So I think um, there are two things from this. First of all, I think we must be careful not to criticize an approach simply because it doesn't fit our type. Right. And at the same time, as we become more aware of what is our particular makeup or type, we should seek out practices that um, fit better our particular typological needs. And so I think one of the great things about Buddhism coming into modernity is that it suddenly becomes much more varied and different. We have within, I'm sure within Mar in Marin County, <laughs> you probably have practice centers and temples and retreats of all different Buddhist schools. Now this we take for granted. But in Asia, this was completely unknown. Right. That any Buddhist uh, country or your family into which you were born for generations sometimes would have only ever been a Gelugpa or a Soto Zen mm -hmm. person or whatever. And there really are no options or very limited options within the range of a particular school. So we're in a very different situation now. And I think we're also in a situation which... Um, gives much more emphasis to a practice as something that helps you flourish as an individual. Whereas that, again, would not have been necessarily the case in a traditional Asian society. So the whole mix, everything has changed. Uh, and so... But on the, again, if we take Jung the other way around, he also would recommend that not to follow your dominant type. Yes, to go because that's opposite. us giving in to what you do easily Easy. anyway. Right that it might actually be, he, 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 he emphasizes the importance of recognizing what, is, what he calls your superior function. Right. And if you can recognize your superior function, let's say thinking, that probably means that your weak point is the polar opposite. Right. So a thinking type, characteristically, will be very poor in the area of feeling. Jung's idea was to individuate more and more towards the notion of a kind of completed and rounded personality which would suggest that you need to work on those areas in which you're not strong. I just want to add an addendum here is that I, I sometimes struggle with the lack of purity of my eclectic uh -huh. approach apart from dipping in. Mm -hmm. I feel very devoted you know to a, a couple of ways of doing mm -hmm. it and I think well How's that going to result in liberation? <laughs> you know, because it's maybe clotted. Uh -huh. I mean, there may be a lot of places in Ber in uh, Marin, but in Berkeley there are five ashrams. You know, within a yes. two-block radius. So, <laughs> you know, it's really uh, pretty fascinating. Anyway, um, it, there's also a degree of, of loyalty that you start to feel when you're yeah. practicing in one way, and if you shift even to the left a little bit, mm -hmm. you may feel, uh, well, I'm being dishonest or mm -hmm. unfair. Anyway. Okay, thank you. Just a little word about devotion. Uh, I do think devotion is an important part of a rounded practice. Um, and I was very much deprived of that. I wasn't brought up in a church-going family. I was brought up in a you know, I was actually excluded from any religious activity, even though there was religious education in the British school system. I was actually taken out of it. And one of, my, one of the things that I most needed, really, when I went to India and got involved with the Tibetan teachers was a, a way to express these feelings that I'd never really had a, a context to do so. But after a while, I found that simply doing kind of ritual devotional practices kind of didn't really work anymore. And I find now, for example, that I don't really do any ritual devotional practice at all, but I find my sense of devotion is actually in the act of sitting, in the act of being with the breath, in the act of opening humbly and with a sense of wonder and awe to the fact of life itself. And that is not an expressive form of devotion. But that's the kind of feeling that I value very deeply in, in my sitting practice. I, to me, the most devotional thing I can do is to sit in some ways. Um, where's the mic gone now? Hey, you've got it there. Okay. Okay, far just, away. Just quickly, going back to your afternoon theme of the self, mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you could comment on the famous quote from Dogen 
to study the Buddha way is to study the okay. self. To study mm -hmm. the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to encounter the self in the 10,000 things. And you can correct my translation if I've got it wrong. <laughs> well, there are many different translations, and I don't know Japanese. Um, the, uh, the, the, the Buddha, the, the, what is the, as I remember it, it's the way of the Buddha is to know yourself. To know yourself is to forget yourself. To forget yourself is to be awakened by the 10,000 things. I think there's a couple more sentences as well. It's from the Genjo Koan of Dogen. Uh, I've always found that to be a very beautiful and a very inspiring and useful way to think. Um, I do think that we, um, the way I would understand it is that um, he sets up first of all the idea that the aim of the process is to know yourself, which is uh, again a, what Socrates also says. Well that we can understand. And then he says the rather surprising thing, to know yourself is to forget yourself. And here he seems to be pointing to what in Indian thought would be uh, letting go of this fictitious false sense of ego that actually gets in the way of your becoming who you could be. So by f letting go of that fixed sense of me, the dropping away, he calls the falling away of body and mind, but the dropping of that or letting go in, in that emptying sort of way I mentioned today frees you from what it is that blocks you from experiencing the fullness of life. And so that, in a sense, the forgetting of the self is to be awakened to what you can become by your embrace and your openness to the totality of life that is present to you in each moment. Um, let's privilege people who haven't answered a question yet. This, have you? You have, I'm sorry. Okay, at the back behind you there's a couple of hands and then there's a gentleman there. Thank you. Um, my question is, could you explore a little more the term dukkha in terms of you said it doesn't simply mean suffering, but there are more nuanced meanings, perhaps, from the Pali or mm -hmm. Sanskrit. That's correct. Um, I'm going to try and find a couple of quotes about that. Oh, I can never find them when I want them. Um, well, the word dukkha, it would be erroneous to say that it doesn't mean suffering. In fact, in modern-day Hindi, dukkha, Pain. That's clearly the, the sort of the primary meaning. But it's a bit like the word rupa we looked at this morning. It does mean visual form, and then it's applied to all sensory experiences, which is difficult for us to grasp. Ditto dukkha. Um, it uh, does mean pain, but it embraces far more than what we would consider to be just painful. In fact, the, the, in the first definition of the first truth, he says birth, sickness, aging, death, getting, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, being separated from what is dear. And then he says, in brief, the Panchupadana Kanda are dukkha, the, the, the five aggregates are dukkha, the five clinging clusters are dukkha. And that refers to everything. Now, you know, everything you experience is dukkha, but it doesn't really make sense to say that everything you experience is dukkha. Uh, it's, um, it's simply not true that everything you experience is painful. Unfortunately, this has become a kind of a Buddhist dogma. Life is suffering. And Buddhists have to try to justify that um, when people say, well, actually, I don't experience a lot of suffering. There's a lot of joy in my life. And the, official, the Buddhist answer will be, well, actually, if only you knew. <laughs> That's not really happiness. Now, this is very similar to the problem Christians and theists have when they say God is good, God is loving. And then the obvious response is, well, what about all the suffering in the world and the genocides and the pogroms and the kids with spina bifida and natural disasters? And then you have to try to justify, it's called theodicy, justification of God, how an all-loving, good God can generate so much pain. So in both camps, Buddhist and Christian, you find theologians trying to justify core 
dogmas of the faith and getting themselves into an awful mess. So Dukkah, I think the way round this problem is again to go back to the thing I mentioned before. I don't think Buddhism is about trying to demonstrate and prove that life is suffering. What the Buddha is concerned with is dukkha parinya, fully know dukkha. In other words, he gives you a task. He says, when you experience dukkha, know it, embrace it. Don't shy away from it. Don't deny it. Embrace it. And dukkha um, can be just as much pleasure as pain. In fact, there's a wonderful passage, that one I can't find in here somewhere, um, where the Buddha's talking to a man called Mahali, um, who's one of his... Oh, here we are, I've got it. Um, he's talking to Mahali, and he seems to be actually addressing your question, actually. He says, if Mahali, form, feelings, perceptions, inclination and consciousness were exclusively suffering, and if they were not also steeped in happiness and pleasure, beings would not become enamoured of them. Right? So he's, he's, he's also aware of this, that life is as much steeped in pleasure and joy as it is in uh, suffering and pain. And if that were not the case, then no one would become attached to anything, no one would desire anything. So it's clearly inadequate. There's another wonderful passage that I've been studying recently, where the Buddha describes his um, awakening in terms of, um, let me find this. He, the Buddha, this is the Buddha's talking. He says, Why, when I was still a bodhisattva, a bodhisattva, it occurred to me, what is the delight of experience? What is the tragedy of experience? And what is the emancipation of experience? Then bhikkhus, it occurred to me, the happiness and joy that arise conditioned by life or experience, that is the delight of experience. That experience is impermanent, dukkha and changing, that is the tragedy of experience. The removal and abandonment of grasping for experience, that is the emancipation of experience. Only when I understood the delight, the tragedy and the emancipation of experience did I consider myself to have attained a peerless awakening in this world. So clearly here he's not saying everything is suffering. In fact, he's saying his awakening was one when he understood what in fact is the joy of life and recognizing at the same time what is its tragedy. In other words, he's not separating joy and tragedy as we tend to do. He recognizes that both are an integral part of our experience, and the problem doesn't lie in the suffering or the joy. It lies in our attitude or relationship, our grasping to have one and to get rid of the other. When that falls away, the grasping, then you experience your life as joy, as suffering, as whatever manifests in the moment, without having to give in to or buy into some dogma that is saying life is suffering. Another beautiful passage that I'll conclude this on. Um, he says, I do not say that those who penetrate into the Four Noble Truths experience displeasure or pain. They only experience happiness and joy. In other words, the, the paradox is, by fully knowing dukkha, suffering if you wish, actually leads you to happiness and joy. In other words, it allows your life to become more honest, um, to be able to touch into your inner world with more honesty, to embrace the sufferings of others with greater sensitivity, greater compassion, and all of this is what enriches our lives rather than convinces us that it's all just misery and we should get off the wheel. Where is that passage? Which one? The last one. Sangyuta Nikaya 35.13 um, and in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation that's page 1136 1136 1136 
you have to read long and hard to stumble across the gems. <laughs> you, that's my translation, I'm afraid. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation is a little bit more long-winded. In fact, he goes through, he says, what is the delight? Oh, this is what the text actually says. says. What is the delight of the eye? What is the delight of sights? What is the delight of the ear? What is the delight of... What is the tragedy? Um, and I've, I've compacted that down to experience. And then the whole text comes alive. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't even read it through. You'd become rather disappointed by it. My translations are downloadable from my study tools section on my website. Yeah. There's another variation. I've also done another bit different from Bhikkhu Bodhi where I disagree with him. He says, uh, I don't want to get into that. But, um, oh, two, yeah. quick, two quick questions. Um, you talked about irrigates, fashions, shapes, which I loved. I didn't hear you talk too much about tames. Why that word was chosen. Thames. Thames. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's, it's the, sans, the Pali is Atanam Dhammati Pandita. Atanam is self in the accusative. Dhammati is actually a cognate of the English word tame. It's D-A-M in Pali, T-A-M in English. Exactly, it's exactly the same word. So you really have no option but to translate it as tame. <laughs> and Pandita means the sage or the wise person. Now, what I think that points to is that um, for we, we witness this in meditation. We sit still. We do this terribly simple thing called, you know, watch the breath. What does the mind do? Anything but. <laughs> this is the untamed mind. The untamed person, really. The, one of the great shocks when we start meditating or doing any kind of inner discipline is we find that as much as we might, might want to do it, our organism, our brain, our mind, whatever it is, does very, just does the opposite. It won't sit still, it won't focus, it won't concentrate. So that's, in, and sometimes in, in Zen they call that the bull, you know, the ox, the taming of the ox, the ten ox herding pictures. In Tibetan Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism they talk of the monkey mind, the elephant mind all of which is about taming. Shamatha is taming the mind. Um, so that's a metaphor that runs through the tradition, but here he's actually talking of taming yourself. We are kind of unruly creatures. We, bear, we, we, we project this persona of being terribly together, as we say, and, 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 and clear-cut and organized and disciplined and so on. But my teacher Geshe Rabton used to say, you go into a room full of people meditating, they all look still and quiet. You've probably had this. You're sitting there. You, your mind's going all over the place. You open your eyes. You look around. <laughs> and he said, if you could see inside everybody's minds, it would be like a boxing match. <laughs> so taming, I think, taps into all of those unruly elements that we do require discipline over a long time to really begin to work with these energies, if you wish. The, 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 this willful, crazy, monkey mind. Uh, you asked, uh, you, oh. you talked about, um, you talked about wanting to make this accessible to the general public and to American mm. culture. Uh, what do you think about mindfulness-based stress reduction as a way to do that, which has removed all of the poly terms? Um, well, it's removed not only the poly terms, it's removed Buddhism. It's uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction has totally secularized a particular meditative discipline within Buddhism. Now, um, there's a big debate around this, and I've recently we were discussing it with, with John Kabat-Zinn himself, and he also is beginning to be a little bit uncomfortable to the extent to which it's been turned into a kind of reductionist sort of therapeutic tool. But... Um, I actually celebrate and I'm very um, impressed by this work um, for a number of reasons. One is that it, it shows that these practices, um, you know, under clinical trials, are shown to work. I find that very, I find that very amazing, really. If some, I've sometimes run a thought experiment back in India in the 1970s in Dharamsala. If, some, if somebody had told me then, in 40 years' time, 
Buddhist meditation will be available on the British National Health Service, <laughs> which it is, I would have said, you know, get real. And stop, stop being such a fantasist. But it's true, and I find that really amazing. And also, I find it's very moving that this very simple but difficult practice um, can have such an extraordinary effect, even on people who are not Buddhists, who don't believe in it. I met a young woman on a course recently, and we were going around the room asking how it is we got into Buddhist practice. And she's a young lady who has terrible third-degree facial burns. Awful. And she went to her GP in London and asked for some treatment for the pain that this causes her. And he said, okay, I can give you a series of steroid injections, or I can give you a four-week course in mindfulness. And she said, I'll try the mindfulness. <laughs> and it worked. It didn't mean that her pain vanished, but she found very easily, actually, a way to manage and deal with that pain that she'd never have thought possible before. And people are not, although Buddhism and so forth you know, are strictly kept out of the story, the fact is all you have to do is Google mindfulness and you find that it's a Buddhist practice. And often, on all, or pretty much every retreat I lead now with my wife, we find there's a, a number of people who have come to the Dharma, really, through healthcare, because they find that it's not only that they find that if I change my attitude towards my reactivity to this pain in my neck, they also realize that actually once you do that, you start to have a different relationship to yourself and your world. And that then opens up the door to a whole other way of life. Now, not maybe only three or four percent, I don't know, of people who go through that end up practicing the Dharma and becoming Buddhist, which you know, is, is one way out of that. But I do sometimes think that the mindfulness-based stress reduction and these things are a bit like a Trojan horse in Western culture. <laughs> they go in, you see, and then they sort of spill out all of these viral Buddhist ideas that, that then take on. <laughs> Uh, uh, one here. I'm right here. Yeah. Oh, yes, Brooke, go ahead. Well, now just commenting on what you just said. I, I, I've taught mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness in medical settings mm -hmm. for many years, and, and I do introduce the ideas. I say these come from the East, and they're kind of technologies of working with the mind. So I kind of own the Eastern mm -hmm. tradition. I say, but these are taught in a very ecumenical way in mm -hmm. this setting, and they've been mm -hmm. found to work. And, and then I feel like I can draw on the ideas a little bit. And, um, but they don't feel like I'm trying to force anybody mm. to believe something. Okay, but I want to go way back to the morning. Okay, okay here we go. So uh, just as two sheaves of reeds might stand leaning against each other, mm. so too with name and form as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, name and form come to be. Mm -hmm. So I'm still completely confused. And what I wonder is, is that linked to the Heart Sutra? I don't think so. Um, um, the Heart Sutra at the moment is not my favorite of Buddhist texts. I know, but I love um, the Heart Sutra. It's, <laughs> no, it's a lovely, uh, it's a beautiful piece of literature. I don't dispute that. Um, but in a sense, the Heart Sutra is trying to resolve a problem. Right. It's trying to reconcile the two truths, basically. Right, which I think this is... Well, oh. I don't think so, because no, okay. there's nothing within either of the elements of the sheaves that would be posited as an ultimate truth, whereas emptiness is, you see. And um, I don't see it as... It's true, I've not thought of it this way. Possibly that would help. Uh, I, I agree, to, I'm also not at all resolved as to how to interpret that text. Okay. And I could have, to suit my purposes, not have included it in the handout. <laughs> well, I was but very I think, I think it's very important that it's there, because yeah, I, I feel that it's, uh, I think it, it's one of these texts that I, I've been thinking about for a long time. And I'm going to write something on all of this material, probably in a lengthy essay shortly. Great. And I'll have to really think this through more yeah. carefully. Um, I, my intuition is that it's saying something rather important that it's suggesting that we can't think reductively of either side of the equation, that we don't want to, th 
we somehow think of consciousness merely as an epiphenomenon of Nama Rupa, uh, at the same time we all want to avoid the other extreme of thinking of consciousness as somehow self-existing independently of Nama Rupa. Exactly. So it's somehow trying to find a way to, um, uh, to understand how we're talking about a highly complex interactive process that's going on, that we can't really have any inkling or sense of Nama Rupa unless we have the consciousness of it. And yet we can't have consciousness without Nama Rupa. But I find it equally difficult to understand the chicken-egg problem. Right. I can't imagine a time when, and this is presumably my own ignorance, but um, I find it hard to imagine a time when there were eggs without chickens or chickens without eggs. I just can't get it. My mind just can't do that. I mean, I um, struggle with this forever. Well, I, I think it's a similar kind of thing. This is my hunch. Or co-arising, which is... Well, co-arising, unfortunately, is a bit of a... It's a bit of a mistranslation. Paticca sang utpada. Paticca means conditioned. Upada means arising. But sang doesn't necessarily mean co. In fact, sung is just used as an intensifier. It doesn't imply, we say ko and then we think of, you know, co-emergent, this, that and the other. I feel that's an, a translator's choice that, it's not wrong, but sung is a, is a, is a very common uh, particle in Sanskrit and Pali that can mean ko, but it can also just mean like sung Buddha, you know, it means fully awakened. They're not co-awakened. It's the same word, the same particle. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's got lots of meanings. And so I think we have to be a little careful there, because I feel that actually what the Buddha's interested in is actually more of creating conditions that will generate consequences as our lives unfold. He is talking of this in what we might call a linear processual way. But in that case, yes, he does seem to acknowledge uh, there's this interdependence. So I think we have to take both into account. Um, but I'd be, due, I'd, be, I'd be careful just to assume that it means co-arising. Okay, one, one, one last small thing. Uh, Guy was talking about this summer on a retreat about uh, the Buddhist thing about life is suffering. And he, he, he said, life... Uh, well, wait, there is suffering. Not life is suffering. Yeah, and I, well, I think that well, was that, an attempt to get to what you were saying, too. Well, that is actually a more accurate translation, because the text does not say life is suffering. It just says, this is the noble truth of dukkha. Dukkha is. But I'm, my question is that you're still presenting the Buddha's core teaching as a set of propositions to be believed, rather than as a set of tasks to be performed. And I feel that that makes all the difference. I, I don't. Th I think we. I feel it's been very helpful in my own practice and understanding to move away from the idea that the Buddha's teaching is descriptive to the idea that it is prescriptive. It's not something. It's not a claim to describe things accurately. It's a series of suggestions to do something. One more question. It's one minute to go. Who's going to be the lucky person? Someone who hasn't asked one yet. Oh, this John. Okay, John, you get the last word. I, I wonder if one of those prescriptions, Stephen, what you might think about the importance of opening to the felt experience of our feelings and emotions, mm -hmm. whether they come up on the cushion or off the cushion. It seems like as soon as you say... As soon as you have a view that clinging and craving lead to suffering, I wonder if there's an almost inevitable tendency in our psyche to not want to get rid of uh -huh. clinging and craving and even get mm -hmm. rid of desire and longing and push all those things away rather than uncover what feelings might be lurking un mm -hmm. underneath and even exploring in a felt way the clinging and craving. What's the felt experience of clinging and craving? And It's really opening to that, seeing what unfolds from that. No, I completely agree. I think another one of the dogma, the, the dogma one that needs to perhaps be questioned is life is suffering. The next dogma that really needs to be questioned is craving is the origin of suffering. Uh, I think that's a very difficult to know what on earth it means. 
And again, I just don't think it's true. But again, the, 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 the point is that when the Buddha talks about craving, um, grasping, he says craving is that is to be let go of. He doesn't, uh, I don't think he actually says craving is the cause of suffering. I think you could equally well argue that suffering is the cause of craving. That in other words, craving is, is a response or a reaction to something we can't bear or something that is you know, unacceptable or something that it comes out of fear. So I agree. I think that uh, the, the, the whole of experience needs to be fully embraced. That, for me, is where the whole practice begins. And that means being able to find the stability and the quietness and the openness of mind to be able to say yes to experience. The Germans say ja sagen, which means to say yes, which means to accept. And that, to me, if you, if you can't do that, you don't really have a ground out of which this path can then evolve. So it means being able to say yes to greed and fear and uh, erotic stuff, everything, is to be able to be able to hold that and say, yeah, this is where I am, this is where I'm at. Uh, Shantideva, whose work I translated many, many years ago, uh, says exactly this thing. For him, the practice of mindfulness is being able to be with whatever occurs without privileging some things as likable and other things as unlikable. And I agree with you. I think if you go in with the idea that craving is bad, it's going to cause suffering, it's going to cause rebirth, then of course your relationship to it will be aversive. It's bound to be. So I feel that in some ways these core ideas need to be transformed from dogmatic statements into existential injunctions. And that, if we could do that, I think the whole picture of what Dharma practice is about would change. And I think we can learn a great deal from non-Buddhist disciplines here. I don't think it's Buddhism's got the last word on everything at all. I think we can enrich the Buddhist understanding by dialogue and interaction with other contemporary disciplines. I'm afraid we're going to have to stop. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.